What's up, everyone? This is episode number 64 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast. My Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Okay, today I want to talk about a couple of teams that were featured in the Last Dance documentary. Uh, This is a documentary that I enjoyed a lot. Uh, I learned a lot from it, especially some of the stuff from um, the earlier parts of Jordan's career. I got to see the, the later part. Um, I've read parts of the Jordan rules, but the documentary helped to kind of put Sam Smith's book in context a little. A lot of shows, especially on TV, but I know some podcasts as well that I've listened to have been talking about the documentary. I've consumed a lot of that in my free time, too. So now that I'm digging into the topic a little bit, I want to come at things from a little bit different approach, just to try and give you guys something different here. So a lot of you know that I'm a huge Pacers fan. I've never been shy about that. Uh, I had a lot of posters in my room growing up, most of them Pacers. You got to understand that Michael Jordan caused me a lot of frustration as a 10-year-old in the late 90s, and yet there was still this weird fascination with him. So in between all of the Reggie and the Pacers posters I had hanging up, I had a poster that had Jordan, Pippen, and Rodman on it. And I think I might have even taken that down after Game 7. But once the finals started up, that thing was back up again, and there I was rooting for the Bulls to beat the Jazz. So it was a very weird dynamic. Um, It's hard to explain it if you weren't there. They They really weren't villains. Um... And they they were a huge part of pop culture, but they still made me mad when my beloved Pacers had to play them. So I wanted this week, not only just to talk about the Pacers, but I wanted to bring someone on today that maybe could empathize, right? So that means that he's been through it too with me a little bit. So Adam is back with me. Adam, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing great until you brought up the the team that beat my team and the fact that we can empathize as losers. I don't feel so great about that. If, but if we're losers together, that makes it just I guess just a little bit better, right? Mis- misery loves company. There's no question. So, Adam, um, I, I mean, I kind of have alluded to it here, but... Um, and it's pretty obvious by now, and people that know you, you know, know know why you're here. But can you tell the people why I've chosen you specifically? Uh, I think so. Yeah, um, I am. Uh, as I as I told my sixth grade classmates when my when my teacher asked me to tell them something about myself, I told them I am the biggest Utah Jazz fan in the entire world. <laughs> and um, I think there are still people in the world today that when they think of the Utah Jazz, they probably think of me because um, it's the only team that's ever really mattered to me. And I am a huge Jazz fan. And uh, quite frankly. Even though I, I know other collectors, I think you're the only jazz fan I know. Um, <laughs> now, now you are still a, a big jazz fan, so I don't want you to think I chose you just because you were the only one I know. Um, but you just happen to be the only one that I know as well. It's not it's not a team that has um, a lot of appeal, I guess, outside of that area. It was same thing with the Pacers, though. Um, where where are the Pacers fans? Right? You, typically, it's you're either from Indiana or you know, or something weird happened. Um, so you talked about this a little on your latest episode, 
of your podcast. I want to give that a plug. Mm-hmm. Um, this was your Kobe Bryant episode, but a, you, you talked about how a large portion of your collection revolves around Michael Jordan and Kobe. So I, you like pain, apparently. Um, you like <laughs> you like torturing yourself. Uh, before we get too far, though, can you explain what it is about these two players? You know, we've we've already talked about the pain that they've caused. That has caused you to still pursue their cards, despite all the things they did to your favorite team. Yes, I um, I am a collector of basketball cards and and a really big. Um, fan of the history of basketball cards and so sometimes I will see a card and I will recognize it as as important whether I like the guy or not in full disclosure I don't Michael Jordan is very possibly my least favorite player in the history of the game you talked about having a poster on your wall of him when you were a kid I didn't and I never would (laughs) because Michael Jordan wasn't somebody who I ever liked I didn't I thought he was arrogant I thought he was, um, I mean, everybody knew he was the best, but the fact that he knew it and felt like he wanted to talk to you about it just really rubbed me the wrong way. You know, I grew up watching this team of a couple of guys who I thought were humble, and maybe they weren't. Maybe it was just my childhood brain that felt that way, but I felt like John Stockton and Carl Malone came to work with their lunch pails. They worked real hard, and they played for our city, and they just did an amazing job, and we just loved them. And I felt like Jordan just was idolized by everybody and and I just I couldn't stand the guy but you know you fast forward all these years later and I am like basketball cards have been a big part of my life I care about the hobby and I I, and, and it sounds like super corny and cheesy and all that stuff I get that but like I see a card and I recognize it as important so some of my favorite cards you know just to just to give some of your listeners who might not know me you know a taste like some of my favorite cards are a Jordan Jambalaya card, um, you know, a uh, Jordan Fusion Gold card. Those are really important cards to the history of the hobby. And I have the same sort of thing with Kobe, except for the difference is that I, I feel different about Kobe the guy than I, than I do Kobe or Mike Jordan the guy. I still don't really love Jordan. I appreciate that he's the best ever. I will defend that he's the best ever. I don't think it's particularly close. But you don't have to like somebody to think they're the best ever. I can kind of separate what I like from what I think. And I think Jordan was great, but I don't I still don't like him. But yes, I do have a lot of his a lot of his um, better cards. Okay, so uh, I, I can go with that. I can see that there uh, well, if you were to look into my personal collection box, I somehow have accumulated a pretty large pistons collection too. Um, mm. And I, I, someone asked me about it the other day, actually, and I, I think it um, it really boils down to, you know what, at the end of the day, I kind of have a nostalgic connection to those. Whether it elicits a good feeling or a bad feeling, there's a strong feeling. And um, mm. for me, that's part of what, you know, it's like, well, okay, maybe I do want to get this Tayshaun Prince limited logos or I do want to get this card that shows him blocking Reggie Miller in the playoffs why do I do that to myself well there's a strong feeling attached to that I guess there's a a strong bit of nostalgia but um, anyway let's keep talking about how we're losers um, and how the the teams more uh, more specifically that we follow 
um, are losers. However, though, they they did give the Bulls the most trouble in the 98 playoffs, um, our two teams combined. Um, And since the Pacers were in the Eastern Conference, I guess that makes me the first loser out of the two of us. And we'll segue into that series in in just a few minutes here. But I also want to keep in mind that this is a show about basketball cards. I want to try and set the landscape for the hobby then as well. So consider this episode as best as we can, um, kind of a time capsule. So um, I was, I know you were collecting at the time as well. I was, I'll give some background real quick. I was collecting at this time. um, I started around 95 but um, it was, you know, just whatever packs I could get at the store. I didn't have a local card shop. Um, I know I didn't get my first Beckett until the following season because I remember it had Vince Carter on the front. Um, yeah. And I know you've been going through some old Becketts on some of your recent episodes in a segment you have that's Beckett Bites, I think is what it's called. Um, yeah. And that's been kind of fun. But, you know, we didn't have the internet resources that we do now. So we really... Um, we relied on those things a lot back then. So Walmart was my card store, which is why I opened what seems like an infinite amount of regular tops and collector's choice. Uh, people ask me, you know, why I'm not completely enamored with PMGs and, and they are nice looking cards. But like I've said before, I didn't even know numbered cards existed then, even though I was open, I, I opened metal packs. I didn't know the PMGs existed. Um, now you are a few years older than me, not much, but you're a few years older and I feel like you have a better grasp on what this time frame looked like in the moment you were part of a card shop scene. Uh, can you paint a picture of what collecting looked like in the late nineties or at least what it did for you? You did a really good job of setting that up, uh, Kyle. I, I do. I want to, that's, that's a great, that's a great question. So in 1997, 98, I was 14, 15 years old. Um, that was really a fun time of collecting for me. I wasn't, I, I didn't have a lot of money growing up. Um, and uh, I didn't get to buy a lot of packs, but I can remember specific packs that I bought. I remember buying a pack of 1996 player showcase, for example. I remember the cards that I got. I remember, I have kind of a weird memory when it comes to some of these types of things. Um, and uh, 97, 98, I will tell you, is a confluence of a lot of really important things that happened in the history of basketball cards. Okay, so 90, 95, as the years went through went through in the 90s, each year became, there's, there's really noticeable differences in each year. 97, 98 is a year where production decreased from the prior years. So if you find a card that's a 1 in 72 pack insert from 97, I would suggest that that's rarer than a one in seventy-two pack or one in seventy-two pack insert card from '96, because I believe that the, the the actual number of cards that was created decreased in '97. That's one element that's important. More importantly than that, I shouldn't bury bury the lead. More important than than that, you had the the first, uh, not the very first, but the the um, larger amount of. In, uh, numbered inserts to have hit the hobby. So 96, the year before, had had uh, Flare Showcase, had Legacy cards, and EX uh, 2000 had Credentials cards. But in 97, you got a lot of different types of numbered cards. You got numbered inserts from um, from each of the companies. I don't think from Tops. I don't think Tops numbered anything, but Flare certainly did. And Upper Deck, I felt like tried to tried to match Flare in this way and did a couple of numbered inserts. But there's numbered inserts. You know, insert sets numbered to ten or numbered to hundred and um, numbered to two hundred and fifty and things like that. And then there were parallels. 
And these parallels are, you know, parallels where you take the base set and you add something to the base set that makes it a little bit different. And, and you know, some of these cards that are serial numbered are things like EX2001 Credentials, again, FLIR Showcase, uh, Finest Gold Refractors, um, you know, upper upper deck, upper deck. Oh, I, I just said the uh, tops didn't do anything in '97. Obviously, I'm wrong because because the finest refractors they did. And I think uh, the, the finest uh, refractors Stadium Club first day issues, right? Was first was '97 the first? I should know that. I think I think you're right. Or was it '98? I think you're right. I think it was '97. That's not something that I've ever been um, as into, but I think you're right about that. You also had you know the first some of the first autographs. Uh, there were there were obviously autographs going back to I think ninety one, but in ninety seven they really blew up. And then the, maybe the biggest notable difference uh, that was definitely a first year thing is Upper Deck issued the first jersey cards mm-hmm. from nineteen ninety seven. So it was the first time where you felt like you could open a box of cards and not just get like a hundred dollar card. There were thousand dollar cards in the Beckett, and you felt like they really were thousand dollar cards. And years later, some of those cards that were thousand dollars are worth you know. 50 times that now and uh yeah it was it was a really interesting time it became a more expensive time i wish i if i was a few years older i would have been buying you know boxes of ex and boxes of metal um but i didn't have that money at the time i couldn't have i couldn't have bought those boxes so um i didn't get you know a lot of the really big cards but i knew what they were and mo- for the most part not not totally but for the most part 22 years later the things that were really big cards in 1997 and 98 are still really big cards today so i have i have two follow up questions for you i'm going to try not to deviate too much here um you okay. mentioned that production was cut from 96 okay. to 97 now 96 you know we had an amazing rookie class 97 though had regardless of how everything kind of ended up um you know duncan a big deal van horn was a a big deal at the time um and there were still some decent rookies in 97 and there was some buzz about it obviously there was some drop off but um you know why do you think there was a, a cut in production was it related to the rookie class or you know what's do you have any theories on that I do. I think it had to do with more of a macro view of where the hobby was. I think if you look back historically, the hobby really peaked in like the the 89 to 91, 92 range. And I think every year after that, you have a decrease. So I think there were less cards in 96 than there were in 95, than there were in 94, than there were in 93. And I just think that that's generally what happened. Maybe they made some more sets, but they made those sets rarer. So I would say... You know, like 97EX, I think is rarer than 96EX. I don't have anything empirical on that. That's just kind of a sense that I get. Right. Um, So you mentioned that some of the most valuable cards from that era today um, line up with what was valuable then. One of them we've talked about a little bit already, but the PMGs. And I think you went through PMGs on your latest episode. Uh, I'm Mm -hmm. I'm hoping I don't mix my episodes up here. Um, No, you're right. And you mentioned that Commons booked for $30. Yeah, so I actually have the the Beckett open in front of me right now. So the PMG Championships, the Commons were $30. The PMG Reds were $15. $15. (laughs) Okay, so let's say, now remember, because I didn't know these cards even existed then when I was collecting Mm -hmm. them. You did see them though in in your shop or you you at least knew of them is that correct 
Yeah, I I bought. Now this is a little bit this is a little bit later, but I bought a John Stockton Green a few years later, which has a terrible story to it. But um, I bought that John Stockton Green for seventy six dollars, which was a huge underpay even in nineteen or even in two thousand and two when I bought it. So I remember seeing that. I remember seeing a Brian Russell uh, Green. I remember seeing people sell cards in our at our local bid board in lots, like two or three. Precious metal gems, red cards for five dollars. Oh man! Just I mean, so so that they booked for fifteen. They certainly didn't sell for for fifteen. It, it, when when jersey starts, when jersey cards started coming out in larger quantities in the late nineties and in the early two thousands, people forgot about this stuff for the most part. Now maybe not the really high end stuff. Maybe not a Jordan, but if you know you wanted to find a Dale Davis red, you weren't paying more than three or four dollars for a Dale Davis red. Flash, you know, flash forward to 2020, and that is no longer the case. Right. <laughs> but yeah, and, for a time, and that's actually uh, worth very much. that's actually the one that I own, um, I, which <laughs> I bought a few. Well, I say a few. It was probably four years ago. I think I paid 130 dollars. I felt like I overpaid. I think that's part of why I I have a uh, um, kind of a disliking. I don't. I wouldn't say a disliking, but you know, I I don't think they're what a lot of people think they are. I'll put it that way. They are beautiful cards, though. But uh, someone asked me yesterday. They said, "What do you think your Dale Davis is worth now?" And I said, "Well, you know, common sell for about the ones I've seen were selling for about two forty or two fifty, which is crazy. Um, but you know, it's a very popular set." And the Pacers, as you know, are you guys have the Jazz and the Pacers have a lot of things in common, and mm-hmm. I think we'll talk about some of those things later in this episode. But people follow the Pacers. the The common there, I I don't know, I could be wrong, but I would guess your Davis is probably three fifty, um, three three hundred and fifty dollars. I don't actually own a single card from the from the ninety seven ninety eight Metal Universe uh, PMG set. I've owned several of them. I think they're a great card, and they're certainly considered the most popular, but they're not my favorite. And one of the things that I'm really big on and that I will just preach during every one of my episodes is, you know, I think that people need to collect what they like. And if I look at, if I look at my, myself in the mirror and I say, what do I like the most? It's actually not the reds. Right. The greens to me have a certain kind of appeal because they're from that era and they're such an incredibly difficult chase that right. they have an appeal to me that's different. Um, but not actually like from a, from a, you know, from a looks perspective, I think the reds in a lot of cases look look just unbelievable. The Kobe red to me is one of the better looking cards, and I would actually be interested in finding one of those. It's probably it's probably a pipe dream for me at this point, but, um, uh, but yeah, I don't I think, know. You say that, but I've seen some of the stuff you've acquired recently. I guess you never know, right? You never know. Um, now I will say though, I am glad that I own one. It's one of those cards. Like I'm glad I have one. I don't really want to seek out anymore. Yeah. But um, just to yeah. be able to, you know, it gives me a lot better understanding of the card. And it's funny around that same time that I bid on uh, that I bought the red, um, the Dale Davis green came up for sale. One of them mm. sold for I think I want to say five hundred fifty dollars, which I was just mm. I was just like oh my goodness that is you know such a high price because um, I already thought I overpaid on my red and you know here we are now I'm not even going to speculate <laughs> where a common green would end up I haven't I know a Todd Fuller came up for sale and and people laughed at the price and then someone paid it so of course uh, yeah. because it's because you can't find it's them. so. 
Yeah, and, and we're going to sound like, you know, a, f- a famous one of your videos that you made where you say there's just not enough to go around. But but no, like there, there is there is truth to the idea that when there's not, you know, we've we've both mocked it. Right. right. But there's truth it's to true. the idea that when there isn't enough to go around, regardless of whether it's good looking or whatever else, like this, this hobby is not all about what is good looking. It's not all about like, oh, that's the most iconic or that's this or that or it's that. It's such an imperfect hobby of like weird sort of like people one group of people wants this one person wants that and one or two people can completely shape you know the 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 values of some of these things and and then there's this follow the leader tendency i i actually posted a a set today on my instagram it was it was from the 97 98 metal universe set it's the gold universe insert set it's a 10 card set from all i can tell it has the same technology as the pmg reds and greens it's a gold card, which gold is really popular right now. Right. Um, they were one in 120 uh, packs, so one in 1,200 packs for each specific card. I put the, the set together for under $300, and that's less than the price probably of your Dale Davis today. Yeah. And and to me, like, and no offense to the Dale D- Davis, I know that's a more valuable card. I know it is. But, like, as a collector, I look at that and I go, what are we doing? This is insane. Well, shouldn't we, like isn't there something to like the idea that you know there's good players in here and this is a better looking card but the rarity matters rarity always matters right and and i guess as much as i i I have to step back sometimes because you know we see things from our own perspective and i'm thinking everyone should collect like me i'm glad everyone doesn't um because then you know I, i wouldn't be able to afford anything if everyone wanted the exact same stuff that i want so all right, um, we will continue to mix in some card chatter along the way. At least I'm going to try to. Um, we are going to close with um, talking about a few cards that we've selected from the teams that we're talking about today. But let's talk about these teams. So, Adam, I'm actually going to put you on the spot right here at the start. Um, I want to know what you thought of this Pacers team, uh, the 97-98 Pacers team. You mentioned that you were rooting for the Bulls as soon as the Pacers beat you guys. I want you guys to know I was I was rooting for the Pacers like I have almost never rooted for another team. I loved your Pacers teams and I've 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 actually really kind of always liked the Pacers teams. I like how they're put together. Um, there have been a lot of years where you guys have, have picked up a player that we wanted or vice versa. You know, I think about guys like Tyler Hansbro and Roy Hibbert and Gordon Hayward. These are team. These are players that the other guy that the other guy liked. Anyway, I or the other team liked. I digress. Um, let's go back to the to the ninety seven ninety eight team. Um, I I loved the toughness of the Davis boys. All right. I I didn't. I don't have fond memories of Mark Jackson because his time in Utah was was bad. But at the time <laughs> he was in Indiana, he was really. You know, he was interesting. I remember just backing people down. Reggie was just such a schmack talker. I mean, he just, the the Spike Lee things and the, like, he, it was a really interesting team. Remind me, was Rick Smith still the, the center on that he team? Was, he yeah. was, yeah. He actually, he made the all-star team that year, which a lot of people yeah. wouldn't believe, but uh, he did. I remember Rick Smith's, man. I mean, guy, like... Obviously, it's seven foot four and had a decent like little like he he, he made his free throws and um, he was he was great and the the Pacers teams were always great and always well coached 
and I rooted for you guys, and I remember it got to that game seven, and I just, man, I just hoped. And if I, if memory serves, you know, they had a they had a decent chance to win that game. They were ahead at different points in the fourth quarter, and and then when it just went the wrong way, I, I remember. Here's the other thing I remember. It's funny. It's funny. I'm reflecting on this for the first time in a long time. I remember watching the news that night, and somebody, you know, here in Utah, and I remember the uh, newscasters were like asking random people on the street you know what do you think that the jazz are gonna have to play the bulls again and jazz fans were so excited and i remember thinking you guys are idiots like we had a better chance to beat indiana and no (laughs) offense to your indiana teams because they were good who knows what would happen in those series right? right we can't take it for granted who knows but i wanted i wanted to play i wanted to play your pacers team I, I figured there was a part of that in there, and, and I'll probably talk about it later. There was a part of me um, that says we would have beat the Jazz. And, and I'm going to—I'll say it now before somebody points it out. I'm going to say we probably a million times. I know I'm not on the Pacers. Um, that's just kind of how I speak. I feel that connected with it. But, yes, obviously I wasn't out there on the floor playing. Um, but uh, so so let's let's run through the numbers because I'll, I'll have I have some jazz thoughts for later on, but I'm going to save those. Um, so the Pacers that year, they had the second best record in the East. Uh, they were coming off a, a year prior to that where, you know, they they didn't fare so well. They had Larry Brown as the head coach. He. Uh, he left. Um, so anyway, the Pacers had the second best record in the East this year. The Bulls had 62 wins. The Pacers had 58. Larry Bird was the new coach. He was eventually named coach of the year. Uh, fun fact here real quick. He's the only man in NBA history to win the NBA MVP, uh, coach of the year and executive of the year. Only guy to do that. So um, obviously, you know, when people think of Larry Bird, they think of Boston, but he's got some very, very strong Indiana ties as well. Um, I think every time Larry talks about this team, he downplays his role in their success. You know, he'll talk about how he had Rick Carlisle as an assistant coach or he had a veteran roster and they were an easy team to coach. And they just traded for Chris Mullen, which um, I was telling someone the other day when we traded Eric Dampier for Chris Mullen, I felt like we were like a super team. Um, which, you know, now now we see real super teams and, and that's not so much the case. But all I knew was that uh, Chris Mullen had a lot of cards. Chris Mullen was an all-star and we were adding him. Um, so I was really excited about that. And I love the upper deck um, base card that year of Chris Mullen because it was a press conference image and I am a sucker for press conference cards. Don't ask me why. Um, I really don't know, but, um, so anyway, they already had Reggie, they had Jalen, they had Mark Jackson, as you mentioned, now you mentioned him in Utah, that was like 2002, right? So he, he was, he was washed up by then, but, um, Antonio and Dale Davis, Rick Smith. So it was a very good team top to bottom. You know, I could keep going Derek McKee. He was a six, nine small forward that could really lock down on someone defensively. Um, you know, he was he forced Jordan to go into the double clutch at the end of game four. And I, I know, you know, that was in the documentary. I know there were a lot of people that maybe just saw that for the first time this week in that clip. So anyway, as I said earlier, this Pacers team crushed the regular season. They moved through the first two rounds of the playoffs relatively unscathed. They beat the Cavs three to one. They beat the Knicks four to one, which was fantastic. I love beating the Knicks. 
Um, actually, you mentioned Roy Hibbert earlier. I think this is the anniversary of, of when Roy Hibbert basically killed the Knicks. Um, but that's that's mm. for another day. Um, <laughs> that block that ended the Knicks. Um, all right. So then it was on to play the Bulls, which, as we've seen from the documentary, was a, um, a very successful, dysfunctional 62-win team. I, I know that seems like a bit of an oxymoron, but I think that's an accurate way to label them. So, um, you know, Chicago took the first two games. Indiana took the next two. Um, for me, kind of game four is is the highlight of that. And um, I, I'm sure you were probably excited when you saw Reggie hit that shot as well. Um, that's when he, of course, shoves Michael at the end of the game and hits the game winner. Um Michael's good at shoving people. He deserves yeah, it. Yeah, so so yeah, let's talk about that shot for a little bit here because um and granted Michael almost hit one after that, but um Reggie's shot was such an iconic shot for me because it indicated a couple of things. Um uh, number one, Michael wasn't going to get every call. Um, which, you know, that's a lot of I'm not gonna get into the LeBron and Michael debate. I know Michael got a lot of calls, but Michael did not get every call. Um, this was a blatant shove, but you know refs just don't like to call that kind of stuff at the end of games. And um, Reggie's even mentioned that before. So, uh, and then number two, I think it showed that this wasn't a David and Goliath type thing. You know, had we gone down three to one, people, um, you know, wouldn't really take Indiana seriously, but they were a legitimate team and they, and they posed a legitimate threat. So, um, and so much so that I, I felt like they would have beat Utah had they gone on, but I, I know you don't agree with that, but, um, <laughs> anyway, you know, going through this, they, they swapped games after that and the Pacers fell in game seven. I, I remember watching that on a uh, 13 inch TV with rabbit ears in my basement I do want to make a, a pretty significant correction, though. And you, you alluded to a turning point in that game, which there was um, a lot of... I've noticed that Reggie and Mark Jackson and Jalen, they all want to say it was a Rick Smith's losing a jump ball. Well, I've watched and rewatched that game a number of times. Don't ask me why. I should have just watched it the first time and let it go. Um, but... They switched Scottie Pippen on Mark Jackson at one point, and Mark Jackson couldn't initiate the offense. Um, and I, yeah. I felt like Pippen kind of got downplayed as this, as the documentary, you know, went on, and and you know, defense never really, they never really addressed that. Which Jordan was a, an amazing defender too, but the Pacers couldn't get into their offense like they needed to. So, uh, and then Michael pretty much willed the team to a win. So. Anyway, that's always been my perspective. But uh, then it was on to the NBA Finals where the, the Bulls ran into your hometown, Utah Jazz. So um, I will defer to you. I, I have some notes here, but I'll defer to you on most of this. Um, I'll give you some of the numbers, and then I'll let you add some pieces in. The Jazz were, of course, coached by Jerry Sloan. They finished the season 62-20, and 20, so they were the number one seed in the West. Um I don't know how much you remember the first round, but they actually struggled quite a bit against the number eight seed Houston Rockets. Um, was there anything that, that stood out to you in that series or anything that you remember? You know, I don't remember um, 
I don't remember a lot, but uh, it doesn't shock me that they struggled against the Rockets. The Rockets and the Jazz had a number of incredible series through the years, and that particular Rockets team, I mean, you you still had you still had Elijah one, right? right. You still had Elijah one playing playing at a you know. He wasn't at the very end of his career at that point. And Elijah Wan's one of those guys that when people put together a top 10 list or a top 15 list gets gets forgotten sometimes. He was great. I mean, people rarely talk about how Houston made a mistake taking him over, over Jordan because he was so good, right? He was so good. People always talk about how Portland made a mistake with Sam Bowie, but, um, but Jordan... Or but sorry, but Akeem had a great career. Remind me who who they played in the second round. So the second round was uh, the Spurs. So that uh, that yes. series, Tim Duncan rookie year. Yeah. So that series, though, um, surprisingly, they handled uh, well the Spurs, and then they beat the Lakers 4-0 after that. And you know, it's like the Shaq was there. So um, I do want to talk about I do want to talk about the the Lakers series. Do you have anything else specifically to add? Um, to that I, second no, round no, matchup against the Spurs. Yeah, go ahead and talk so about that. The, so the first thing I would say is the, the as soon as I saw Carl Malone play Tim Duncan, I I immediately, even though I was you know in my young teenage years, I immediately kind of got nervous because Duncan was so good. Even as a rookie, it was like it was terrifying how good he was. And I recognized then, look, my guy Carl Malone is in his you know by that point twelfth, thirteenth season, and you've got this this young guy who's coming up. And Robinson was you know was younger than Malone too, and I I, I was worried at that point that that the Jazz's dominance you know I shouldn't say dominance, but they did win the West you know a couple years in a row. Right. Um, I was worried that that it, that it might be coming to an end soon. It turned out that I was right because. That was the only time that they played each other in the playoffs, and and they won. But after that, they never, you know, they never got far enough to be able to play against the Spurs again. Um, so beating the Spurs felt, you know, felt great. And then we knew we had to face this, you know, this Laker team that was just um, really terrifying. You had uh, a guy in the middle in Shaquille O'Neal who was, you know maybe one of one of the most dominant players of all time and at the peak of his of his powers right he mm-hmm. was great and dominant and kobe was young he was you know in his second year in the league and um you know, he was uh he was he was still really good um you had you had a great supporting cast and um you know they were they there was a lot of talk about the Lakers being able to beat the Jazz that year. I remember it's funny the things that stick with you. I remember that the Lakers had a guy who was kind of a end of the rotation player called Corey Blunt or Blount. <laughs> yeah. I heard it pronounced both ways. And he said prior to that series, he said, "Look out because there's going to be a sweep." And it turned out he was right. <laughs> Mr. Corey Blount was absolutely right about that sweep. The only thing that was unfortunate for him was it was in exactly the opposite direction that he predicted. Uh, my Jazz dismantled the team that was supposed to really challenge them in the Lakers, and that was with Greg Ostertag going against Shaquille O'Neal. That's a story that people don't want to remember because you know that's not the narrative that we like to tell. We like to tell narratives that um, that fit a cer- certain storybook kind of style. And we forget what things actually happen. So it's good to it's good to look back and, and and say what you remember. In fact, as you were talking about one of the stories earlier, um, the the Pacers story where they were talking about the Rick Smith's jump ball, my thought that came to me, and I almost interrupted you, but my thought that came to me was how stories get told afterwards 
and it really almost changes it it changes how people perceive what actually happened right but we have the advantage in 2020 of looking back at series from 1997 and saying oh that's actually what happened which is what you've done right you've actually gone back and watched those things and it's funny to say but it wouldn't shock me if some of those players actually had not gone back and watched that now You'll never have the perspective they had. You'll, you know, you'll you'll never hear the conversations they had and things like that. But you can watch and you can say, "No, I think that's wrong." So here's what I remember. I, I'm as I usually do. I'm getting talking too much. Ooh, but here's uh, what, here's what I real quick. What's the saying here? There's something like so, uh, history is created by those who write it. Something to that effect, right? Exactly. That's kind of what. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of where we're going. I, I agree with that. That's what's cool about a podcast too, though, because we get to say what we remember. And, you know, as long as you pay your $180 fee, you've got to pay each year. <laughs> By the way, the plug plug for Kyle, support the guy, buy it, go buy his merchandise and that sort of stuff. Um, as long as you do that, uh, you'll, your thoughts and the thoughts of the podcast will remain. And, and I think that's really cool. So anyway, let me talk about this Lakers series and I'll do it briefly. So this Lakers series was terrifying because they had such talent. But our team was playing, and yes, I, I was not on my team either, but it's still my team. Um, our team was playing so well, Kyle. Like, that was the best basketball I have ever seen my team play. And some people will be like, well, your team's never won a championship because, you know, whatever, you, you haven't ever played that well. We were so good. 62 wins in a really tough West and just marched over the team that almost beat us the previous year in the Rockets marched over the, the Spurs with Tim Duncan and, and David Robinson and then in the end marched over marched over the lake marched over the Lakers but the problem that happened okay actually remember two things that are, that are interesting here the problem that happened is that in game I think it was game three gosh I can't believe I remember this Nick Van Exel had a shot to win the game at the buzzer and it was like a 35 foot Hail Mary shot he totally gets fouled on the on the play they absolutely should have called a foul it was, you know, I think that they probably should have called it. It was pretty debatable, probably. I'm mean, probably being too strong, but but they didn't call the foul, and so the Jazz win the game. It might have been game four. It was game three or game four. It wasn't game one or two because the Jazz had home court advantage, and they marched over, over the Lakers. But Nick, Nick Van Exel gets fouled. They don't call it. The Jazz go on to win it, and they win that game. They win they win the series in four games. They The passing was unbelievable. Hornacek and Stockton are two of the best. I mean, that's made probably the best passing backcourt in the history of the NBA and one of the best shooting backcourts in the history of the NBA. You've got, obviously, Carl Malone, the second, you know, all-time leading scorer and a guy who was second in the league in score, scoring on efficient shooting year after year after year at the peak of his powers. Um, you know, you've got uh, Sander and Greg Ostertag, who was good at standing in the middle and being a nuisance. He did, yeah. And he did Brian, what he had to do. He's a big dude. He did... He did, and you know, he's, I mean, guy was drafted at the end of the first round in, in 1995. He's actually a pretty successful pick from for where they got him. Brian Russell, not Byron, as everybody calls him. Brian Russell uh, was a good defensive three and could shoot the ball and gave guys troubles. And unfortunately, he'll be known for a shot that we're going to talk about here in a few minutes. Um, but guys, you know, guys on the bench like Shandon Anderson and Antoine Carr and Howard Isley, who were just, who were just awesome, we marched over that Lakers team amazing passing, great scoring, good defense. Carl Malone, one of the most underrated defenders in the history of the league. Seriously, it was just awesome. And we get we get done with the series and then it hits me. 
we've got like 11 days till we play the Bulls. It was 10 or 11 days. And I had this feeling right then, which was this, oh, shoot. Like, if this Pacers-Bulls series goes a long time, the Jazz aren't just going to have a little bit of time to rest. They're going to sit and they're going to rest for a long time. Like, rust is a factor here. And sure enough, uh, that's when we get to that's when we get to to game one. So I've I've talked too much already. Do you want me to talk about the Bulls now, or you want to? So I'm, I'm I'm doing what I always let do. Let me interject here real quick. Um, you talked yeah. about um, just how basically the Jazz were a well-oiled machine, and um, that's kind of like I agree with you there. But for me, that's kind of why I didn't enjoy watching the Jazz. Um, and I'll, I'll make some sense of this here in a moment. So as far as like pace of play, they were, you know, they were 21st. Slow. Um, right. Yep. So um, it, they perfected the pick and roll. You know, that's everyone knows about that. They pick and roll teams to death. It's like they were so good and so efficient at something that they were boring. Like I didn't appreciate yep. it because it was just so vanilla, but effective. Um, and, yeah. and I think that that same, um, you know, that's why the jazz don't get a lot of respect. And I think also that's why Stockton and Malone separately don't get a lot of respect, um, is because, you know, it's, that's, that's just kind of what they did and they did it well. And, you know, you, you can look back, you know, if, if I have kids someday and they, they look at the all time scoring list and let's say, even if LeBron passes him, which I don't know if he's going to have enough games now, but Carl Malone right now is number two all-time scoring, and and he then he would be number three if LeBron passes him. But you know, I I just it's it's still hard for me to wrap my head around that because I just don't yeah. like we don't talk about Carl Malone in that way, and I know there's a number of reasons why and different theories, but we just don't talk about Carl Malone like that, which is incredible. He was just a very efficient you know, scoring machine, but yeah. What would you, what would you rather watch somebody who gets the ball from 18 feet out, pumps, fit, pump fakes, pump fakes, pump fakes. You get a little bit too close to him. He drives and he hits a hook shot or you don't get close enough to him. And he hits the 18 footer like six times out of 10, you know, in a really good clip. Or would you rather watch somebody like Kobe or Jordan who does all of the different things? The style of play is, is just so different into the casual fan it's easy to see why one style is far more appealing than the other. But but like the Spurs perfected there, you know, between the late 90s and into the 2010s, great basketball doesn't have to be stylish. It doesn't right. have to be and I actually like because I pro- probably because I grew up on Utah Jazz basketball, like I I really find it interesting when a team finds a way to be efficient and even be boring. When when the other team knows exactly what's coming and they can't stop it, that's incredible. And that's like what I watched for a decade of my youth, um, you know, watching Stockton and Malone. Every game, it was Carl Malone with 28 points and 12 boards and John Stockton with 16 points and 11 assists. It was every game yeah. for a decade. And for me, it was... It was just it was just a pleasure to watch. This is this is probably demeaning to everyone that's involved with this, but sometimes I just I thought of Carl Malone like a an amped up version of David West, which I know that's that's <laughs> probably I mean David West was a, was a at one point a really you know really good player. He made he made two All Star teams if I remember right. So with Chris Paul, I mean he here he was good. Um, think about this. 
because uh, technically the Pacers this year traded for Malcolm Brogdon. Um, D- mm-hmm. David West is the biggest, probably the biggest free agent signing in Pacers NBA history. How sad is that? We're 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 um, fighting fights that don't seem fair sometimes, <laughs> Kyle. As small market teams, I think our greatest uh, free agent signing uh, since the great Carlos Boozer free agent signing was this year when we got Bogdan, uh, Bo- sorry, Bojan Bogdanovic. See, I don't even know his name, and he's on my team. Ooh, so some horrible news for yeah. him today. He's out. I don't know I if know, you saw man. that. He's out the rest of the season. I, do. I love Bojan. Yeah. Anyway, he's a, he's. A, He's awesome. Um, all right, so let's get to the finals. Um, I know people are probably thinking, like, this is too much jazz and pacers for me. But um, who cares, right? So let's get to the finals, though, where we get back to some MJ. So you had to feel good. I mean, game one, Utah gets that first game, right? You're on top of the world. Um, I'd, I'd actually forgotten that. I'd forgotten that they got I game think one. they did. So I'm pretty something. sure they did. Um, I thought that the rust. I thought that the rust hurt them, and they didn't. But you might be. You might. Be I right. think they. So be. I looked it up earlier today. Hopefully, I looked up the right year because, like you said, they went two years. Um, the Jazz won Game One, but then Chicago won three straight. So that might have been. That's what right. you're thinking of. Yeah, that is right. And I. And not only so that, but Game of, Three was just like a slaughter. The worst game that I can ever remember. <laughs> I remember thinking, I remember thinking, this is a must win. We just got to get this. We can't go down three one to the Bulls, and like, I if I remember right, Carl Malone was the only player on the team that hit double figures, and he scored ten. Yeah, I mean it was. Well, they only scored. It, it was in the fifties, I think. They only scored in the fifties. I think it was 56 points total, and the only player on the team who scored in double <laughs> figures was Carmelo, which is amazing because Carmelo has not one but two of the longest streaks in NBA history for most double-digit games in a row. The reason he doesn't have easily the, the longest streak is because he elbowed Isaiah Thomas, got thrown out when he only had two points in the game. Otherwise, that guy was gold for, seriously, 18 points every single night. Like, a mailman, right? Like see, see, I would and I would have said uh, I would have put Wilt up there. So, oh, see, yeah, that's sure. I, like I, Carl never comes into my mind when we have these conversations. So, um, you know what's you know what's interesting about that? Sorry to cut you off. No, no, what's interesting fine. about that? And and this is this is why we're all affected by media and by narratives, right? You just don't realize when you're young that you're being so influenced by those things. Then you get older and, and hopefully you have enough presence of mind to look around and go, you know what, I can see that, the, that this story is being presented in this way to get this number of viewers. There's a reason why the Laker games are shown on ESPN, on SportsCenter, every time they play. There's a reason they play the most national TV games. It's not because they're the best necessarily. Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. It's because of what what sells is what is spoken of by mo- by a lot of types of media outlets, right? Carl Malone, um, who was it? Somebody was asked, I think it was Reggie. I think it was Reggie Miller. I hope I'm not wrong about that, but I think it was Reggie Miller was asked, you know, talk talk to me about who some of the greatest scorers are. Yeah, I'm sure it was Reggie. So talk to me about some of who the greatest scorers ever were. And one of the first names that came out of his mouth was Carl Malone. And casual fan, or, you know, maybe even non-jazz fan goes, Oh, that can't be right. That's insane. Like, dude, go look at that guy's stats. 
Look at what he did. Not only was he second all-time in the history of the league in scoring, he could have been number one if he wanted to be. And you go, oh, that's just Adam talking about the Jazz. No. Like, he went to play with the Lakers that last year. He took a, a you know, a, a role that was more of like a, like a, he was more of a role player. I think he, you know, scored like 12 a game or something like that. And then, well, he was hurt too. He gets, well, he was hurt, but remember, he's playing, he goes from being first fiddle to behind Shaq and Kobe. Right. Right, you're not going to score 25 a game when you go to a team that has Shaq and Kobe on it. It's just not going to happen. Then after he gets hurt, you're right. He gets hurt. After he gets hurt, the next season he sits there and he contemplates. He contemplates whether he wants to come back to the NBA. He gets all the way healthy again and he says, "I promised myself that I would retire only after I was completely healthy. I'm retiring. You will never see me play basketball again." And he was telling the truth. But had he wanted to to come back and play a season, you know, had he wanted to stay with the Jazz and go score 39,000 points, like. You might think it's my jazz fandom coming out. Like, he wouldn't have had a problem being the all-time leading scorer. But people don't remember that because he was in a small market. He didn't win championships. And, I mean, you're just not going to remember that sort of thing. The same way that I'm going to remember, you know, Jordan far better than I'm going to remember Reggie Miller. That doesn't mean that Reggie Miller wasn't better at certain aspects of the game. He was. I think my perceptions have also been... Um, molded by this is going to sound goofy um, Hulk Hogan and Dennis Rodman were <laughs> were way cooler than DDP and Carl Malone um, I love DDP <laughs> you know what though I, I actually so they meant they talked about that a little bit in the documentary and I went back like Carl Malone was like they were he was really impressive in the ring um, you know, he he actually showed some. He showed more emotion in the ring than I remember him showing in the NBA. But I once again, I I was never a huge Malone fan. So, all right, do you remember him putting that stupid that stupid uh, what's it called diamond? What's it yeah, called? the diamond cutter. The diamond cutter sign up, yes, just putting yes. it up really big and like throwing it down. I mean that like he and Rodman wrestled. Are you kidding me? That really happened. And then, and then Malone goes in after they, they lose, and he, well, I don't want to, you know. <laughs> Spoiler he, he alert. Just, Carl, <laughs> Carl Malone is, he's just one of the most interesting people ever. And I could sit here and talk to you about him. Like, I could talk about Carl Malone for hours, dude, for hours. Um, well, obviously, we're, we're already taking too much time, and we've lost 90% of your listenership because I can't shut my mouth. But um, if you ever want to talk about Carl Malone for hours, I'm maybe the only person outside of his immediate family who can do that. We just picked up uh, about six WCW listeners, I think. All right. Boom. So um, so let's say, let's fast forward. Um, and we will, we'll fast forward past your horrible experience in game three. Um, Utah win, you know, they lost game four. Utah wins game five by a basket. Um, can we go to that? Can I talk about that yeah, for a second? Yeah, go ahead. I remember, I remember the great and often controversial Peter Vesey talked about before that game. He said, I've said all along, I think the Jazz are going to win one. I think they're going to win tonight. And Carl Malone, who's known as one of the great choke artists ever by some segments, um, in a must-win game in Chicago, where Chicago has a chance to go win the championship, goes out and scores, I believe it was 38 points and lights up the Bulls and forces a game six in Utah where the Jazz are very... Now, they've beaten them once, but where the Jazz are very difficult to beat. I think people um, 
not that we're here to just blow up Carl Malone, but um, I will say, though, you know, he scored 38 or whatever it was, zero three-pointers. Um, this is an era where they're not averaging 120 a game. Um, so when you see guys scoring in that range, especially, you know, even Jordan, when you see in the documentary him scoring 60 points against the Celtics or whatever, like they're not shooting a lot of three-pointers. And um, yep. it's just incredible. Um, you know, well, we talked about uh, game three. The Jazz scored 56. And then yep. Carl Malone scores 38, 39, whatever it was, uh, by himself two games later. So... Uh, that was pretty crazy. And and who was guarding him, right? One of the greatest defensive players in the history of the game. Right. And Carl Malone goes out in a, in a must-win back-to-the-wall, you know, situation and, like, wills this team to win. I mean, I was so happy for him because he, he got all of this. You know, he always was the guy who was missing the free throws and the guy who was doing the stupid thing. I just felt bad for him over and over again. And we loved him here, but to have him go out and do that was so sweet. And it forced, you know, one of the most sort of historic, important and important games of probably the history of the NBA in game six here in Utah. Does Carl Malone have the record for the most 10 second violations at the free throw line the most unofficial they, ones okay absolutely. yeah yeah they never called it but i absolutely hated watching him shoot free throws because it's just come on shoot the ball already all right oh dude he was he was miserable in that way but the th- again this is another thing about him that you've got to realize he came into the league he averaged he, he shot 59 percent from the free throw line and he ended his career shooting around 80 percent a year he worked and he worked and he worked and he made himself great and part of what worked at the free throw line was sitting there and talking to himself for 11 seconds and then shooting the ball which it's it's interesting i mean i know that, you know anyone that's played knows that the, the dynamics of the shot are a little bit different but like he was so automatic from 17 or 18 feet but then you stick him out of line and you slow the game down and it's like he struggled um well especially especially at the end of the game um bill simmons has talked about the carl malone botox face (laughs) and i know that face it's the I'm scared of the moment face and and it broke my heart because he worked so hard for that team and just never missed games right he missed three games due to injury and I think it was six total because of three to suspension um, during 18 years like can you imagine that like when Carlos Boozer got to the Jazz, he missed more on average in every 20 games playing with Utah Jazz than Carl Malone missed in 18 years like he was unbelievably durable never missed yeah yeah boozer boozer didn't work out so well but all right so um game six then we can we can pretend like it didn't happen or we can address this head on here um the documentary now the documentary did a really good job of outlining game six for us um i'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because of that jordan scored 45 Um, You know, I remember it's one of those moments where I remember exactly where I was. My family watched this game together, which, you know, we didn't watch every game together. Um, But we went into this thinking that this could be Jordan's last game. Um, And then, of Mm -hmm. course, you know, Bob Costas kind of played him out and narrated everything so poetically. But um, so, you know, Jazz fell short, right? Jordan did his Michael Jordan stuff. 
for <laughs> and what were your thoughts when uh, with this series when all was said and done well i will tell you the things that i remember about game six i'll try to make it short but you know i'm not very good at that um i was on vacation in Oregon with my family and I couldn't have been more mad at my mom for scheduling our family <laughs> vacation at a time where the Utah Jazz would likely be playing the Chicago Bulls again in the finals. I remember screaming in the uh, in the motel that we were staying in and having the people complain nearby. I remember turning the game off a number of times because of what I perceived as potentially the worst calls in the history of the world. Maybe my you know 15-year-old brain... Uh, blew that up, uh, exaggerated it a little bit more than it was, or than than than, than what reality was. But I, I think the I was messaging some friends about this earlier today. The thing that I remember most, and I knew it when it happened because it was called out when it happened, is there were two calls in the second half of that game um, that I promise you I'm not still bitter about, <laughs> but I remember them. There was a Howard Isley three pointer that was ten feet out of his hands at the shot clock before the buzzer goes off that Dick Bavetta called no good. And there was a Ron Harper 15-foot runner that was still in his hands that was called good. And in 2020, both of those calls would be reviewed and both of them would go the right direction. But in a low-scoring game that was against the greatest player of all time and with, with one of the only two chances we've ever had to win a championship, it hurt a lot. It hurt a lot to have... Um, two calls like that and I know there's people out there who are going but they weren't at the very last moment of the game and I know but like it changes the end five, of the game though everything adds up the, it was five it was five real points that I that, like, you can go back and watch it like like I'm right on this like <laughs> they were five points that were that were absolutely like that, that swung that swung the game now maybe Michael Jordan was great enough that they would have won anyways like and Scotty Pippen, as you were talking about earlier, about how they put him on Mark Jackson. Man, when they put Scotty on John, like it just bad. Like John, John Stockton's the craftiest, one of the probably the smartest point guard of all time. Okay, but I mean he is. He was six foot one hundred and seventy five pounds, and is like on the short list of greatest point guard in the history of the league. And he couldn't. He he, he Pippen gave him fits. He still had. He still did effective things, but the Bulls still might have won that game. But to my fifteen-year-old like child self, it hurt because it was. I felt like I felt like it was the end, and it turned out that it was the end. But also, it felt like it felt like we were fighting Goliath, and Goliath was given some some extra, you know, some extra points, right. some extra tools along the way, and. And I, you know, like I say, I'm not. I'm actually not bitter anymore. I mean, like I say, I've got. I own Michael Jordan cards, and and I appreciate his greatness. I will argue, even though I don't like him, I'll argue that he is easily the best of all time, for a lot of different reasons. Um, but man, I will tell you, that hurt. So those of you that um, have any objections to that, his handle is at the real twenty seven guy. Is that correct? <laughs> Do that, it, yeah. <laughs> that is not a. Uh, I am not taking a stance on that. I am not uh, even in the COVID era where I seemingly have more time. I am not taking the time to address that with um, tens and dozens of people. All right. Um, so, so um, 
we basically we we both went through a it was a rough year for us right you were you were 15 i was um uh, let's see and i was about 10 or 11 then so uh we both went through a rough year then um but thankfully we can look back on it and um i i can look back on it and say you know what i am i am thankful that i did get to watch michael jordan um, I maybe I didn't yeah. understand what I was watching at the time, but I, I saw enough to where I mean I have some pretty vivid memories of it, and then of course you know I saw him come back later with the Wizards. Um, now you mentioned you you thought for your Jazz that was kind of the end of the road. Um, I was optimistic when he retired, when Jordan retired, because um, you know my Pacer squad was getting older, but they were still pretty good. Uh, lo and behold, they ran into prime Shaq and Kobe um in 2000 so um I can I I will uh have fond memories of those losing series because quite frankly it's the best I got so that's that's just it is what it is um all right so let's bring this back around to cardboard um I know I kind of I changed my instructions for you like three times today so um, I apologize for that, but what I want you to do is um, let's pick three cards or three similar groups of cards that feature a player, in your case from the Jazz, from the 97-98 season, in my case from the Pacers. Um, doesn't mean that the cards have to be from those years, just players that were playing in those years. Um, and I want, you know, just three cards real quick to close us out here. Talk about them. Talk about why you like them. So I'm going to start with my number three, even though these are really in no particular order. Um, and then I'll, I'll let you follow suit. So um, for my number three, for a, a Pacers player from 97, 98, it, it shouldn't be any surprise that I have at least one or two patch cards on this list of three. But um, the first card I'm going to start off with is a Dale Davis card. We talked about him earlier from 2000-2001 Topps Chrome. And it is the final piece patch numbered to 25. Um, now, the reason why I picked this card and why this is significant to me, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, Dale Davis was a huge part of the Pacers' success because he helped make Reggie so successful. Um, those that watched Reggie know that he was moving nonstop, setting screens, curling around screens. This this was a huge part of his game. You can see a lot of those components uh, in the play styles of Ray Allen and Rip Hamilton. So Dale was the guy that set those screens, though, and that was very important. So um, in the early 2000s, there was um, really no reason to make patch cards of Dale Davis, even though I think he did get an all-star appearance. It was kind of one of those sympathy votes. But um, the Pacers made the 2000 finals, and I, I just talked about that, and they made a set based off of that. So um, I collect final stuff, I collect Pacer stuff, I collect patches. Um, this one really sticks out to me. These are not always very cheap, but I got this in a, a lot that was listed poorly for like $11 shipped. It's one of those auctions that you check three or four times a day while it's listed to make sure no one finds it. And then uh, you actually get it. Some of you guys know that feeling. So, um, oh yeah, I know that. that <laughs> so that was my number three, and I'll try and show. Uh, I'll try and show these on my Instagram, and Adam, I'll try and re uh, remind you to show yours as well. All right, so Adam, what what did you pick? Uh, in really no particular order, but what is the, the number three card that you're going to talk about? 
You know me, I like a countdown, Kyle. You so do. I'm gonna I'm gonna do that thing. I'm gonna do that thing. So I actually uh, like you say three groups. My first is, and I was able to pick all of these from the 1997-98 season, which, as I talked about earlier, I think is really one of the most interesting years in the history of, of cardboard. So for me, the the, the pinnacle of 97-98 numbered cards uh, and high high end cards when I was that age was the gold embossed finest refractors um, they're numbered to 74 uh, you could you would be lucky if you walked into a card shop on a given day and you saw a gold card you almost never saw a gold refractor and most of us never literally never ever saw a gold finest uh, embossed refractor I um, am fortunate enough to have both the Stockton and the Malone um, these are two of their very key uh, numbered inserts and as I look at them I opened the Beckett just for fun John Stockton, uh, this is in this is in the December 1998 issue. So this these cards had been out for like maybe three or four months before before this uh, before this posting. John Stockton card number 173 was a hundred dollars, and Carl Malone number 321 was 150 dollars. So oh, wow. I wish I could go back in time and buy that for buy them for that price. I paid more than that, but uh, but yeah. That's my that's my first go. And um, just real quick, we see cards numbered to hundred all the time now. Um, you don't see these. That's that's the difference. Is that yeah? I mean, people show them <laughs> off, but you're not going to probably rummage around in a, a somebody's box at a show and find those. If you did, you've you've hit gold. Uh, no pun intended. Um, all right. So my number two, which I'm actually a little bitter about this because. I completely forgot to bid on one of these tonight because I was playing Call of Duty. It's just, it just, <laughs> I, it just adds to the whole effect here. Um, so this second card is really a set of cards and it comes from 2017, 2018 Flawless. It's a jumbo patch, it's a Rick Smith's jumbo patch. And um, I have multiples of this card because the patch pieces are all different. Um, I picked this one for several reasons. I think today people will see Rick and assume that he is just a slow plotting center, but uh, he held his own in an era that was loaded with really quality big men. Um, in fact, Shaq mm -hmm. has talked about how Shaq hated playing Rick Smith because Rick Smith could shoot and Shaq didn't want to leave the paint. Um, so, that, you know, that was something interesting. He didn't have to leave the paint very much in that era. Uh, but Rick was one of those guys that made him do it. And Rick was three inches taller. So Rick uh, presented some problems for him. Not too many. I wouldn't say too many in the 2000 finals. But uh, at some points in his career, he did. Uh, I mean, Rick hit a game winner against Orlando when he was there. So that was a big deal, too. But um, and, and then, like I said, he made an all-star team in 98. Now, Panini has had Rick Smith's patches in the past, but nothing big until 2017 i was hoping they'd put them in a nameplate set um, but they don't seem to do that with retired players too much anymore i didn't think they'd ever make a jumbo patch set for him uh, leaf did the year before uh, the problem is leaf doesn't even have pictures of the players on a lot of their cards so that kind of bothered me it was kind of an ugly card even though the patch was great well lo and behold uh, panini made this set and so i have hoarded it since then um and that's why I've included this card. 
because I, I never thought I'd see a Jumbo Rick Smith's patch. Not only do we have it, uh, like I've talked about before, I've tracked it down to the actual jersey that they used. So that was pretty cool. All right, Adam, what is your number two? Well, I had a matching pair for number three. I have got another matching pair for number two, but a little bit different. The greatest um, insert set, like I, or the parallel set, like I said when I was young, was the uh, the finest uh, gold refractors. Um, I still think they're high on the list, but it seems that although they're very difficult to find, at least you'll see one every year or couple years. But there's a couple of other inserts. Uh, there's a couple other parallel sets where you may go several years without getting a chance to see them. I think these are probably a little bit rarer than um, than the finest, and that is the EX Essential Credentials. I have both the Stockton and the Malone, um, but what's cool is one of them's the Future, uh, Essential Credentials Future, and that's the Carl Malone. It's numbered to 62, and then I have the Essential Credentials Now, John Stockton, which very fittingly is numbered out of 27. Um, as I as I look, at, the Stockton's a card that I never thought I'd get. By the way, of all the random things, I bought the Malone card from somebody on eBay. Was lucky enough to see it. Made an offer first, like first hour that it had been out. The guy accepted it real quick, and then he messaged me back and he said, "Hey, I've got a couple of other credential cards that walked into my shop from an old collector." He's like, "One of them is a Stockton number to twenty-seven. Would you be interested?" And then I made him an offer, which I'm sure completely blew him away. Um, but you just it it. You know, not to quote your favorite, Say your famous again. line again. Say it like, again. Yeah, yeah, there's just not enough of them to go around. Um, in in the uh, in the same Beckett that I've been referencing, the John Stockton number to twenty seven had an up arrow next to it. It was listed at two hundred dollars, and the um, Carl Malone uh, probably doesn't have an up arrow next to it. It is listed at one hundred dollars. So that's what those cards were worth back in two thousand and eight. If only. You could go back. Well, even then, and finding them, mind you, if you had the money, finding them would still be an issue. Um, all right. There was no inter- there was no eBay. No, I mean, there was, but not not yeah, in anyways. yeah not in the capacity that we have it now. Um, and right. even then, when it start, you'd be sending a two hundred dollar money order. Yep. Which surprisingly, I uh, the money orders I sent, I never got scammed. I can't imagine doing that today, but it it surprises me. All right. Um, My number one card is, I guess, part of me chose this to be a little facetious, but I also do really like this card. It's going to throw some of the regular listeners for a twist. Um, This is a 97-98 card. It's the 97-98 Hoops base card of Reggie Miller. Hmm. Um, Now... um, Mine has a little something extra on it. I'll talk about that in a moment. I bought packs of this product as a kid. I actually love this hoop set. There are several hoop sets that I love. Um, when I say, you know, I've joked a lot about how hoop sucks. I'm being facetious. Like, I love 97 hoops. I love 2012 hoops. There were certain ones that I really got into and bought a lot of. Um, so I bought a lot of these packs as a kid. There's definitely something nostalgic that goes along with it. The design screams 90s. Um, it's got the logo real big in the background. And then there's like this bubble pattern, like the Pacers background is a light blue. The bulls is a, a red. Um, so it matches whatever the, the team was. Um, anyway, someone, uh, I, and I wish it was me, but it wasn't. Someone sent this particular copy that I own to Reggie in the mail. 
and uh, there was a small window, and this was probably by now, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, there was a small window where Reggie was signing some of his mail. And, uh, you know, the SIGs match, you know, everything matches up. Like, I, I'm very confident that the signature's good. He signed it in blue. The signature looks great. I mean, it's not hidden on the card. It pops right off the card. Um, I have several certified Reggie autos, but this example that someone got signed through the mail, and I think I, I think they sold it to me for like 15 bucks, um, is by far my favorite Reggie auto in my collection, and it's on a hoops card. So there you have it. Take that, people. All right. Um, I love it. Adam, you're, what's, what is your final one here? My final card is a card that I think most people, most people, uh, the last two years that I've counted my my collection down, um, think is my is my best card. I do a, a a countdown of my best hundred cards in my collection every year, and there's a lot of reasons why I do that. And it's it's important for me to know, you know, what what cards I think are the most valuable, what cards I think other people think are the most valuable, and when I need to move something so I can create cash to buy something else. I know what card means the least of, least to me that's also worth the most money. So there's a lot of reasons why I do it, but I think most people would consider this my best or my most valuable card. It's from 1997-1998 Metal Universe Championship, and it's a precious metal gems. It's card number 23, and it's of Michael Jordan. But um, you got Michael Jordan going up for, you know, either for a dunk or some sort of acrobatic layup. And you've got the Chicago skyline behind and the the kind of famous PMG championship uh, bubble pattern. I think people have different names for that. But, um, but off to the side is the mailman. And the reason that this card is important to me, that's probably really different than, than, uh, than most people. Um, you know, I alluded to it earlier. I'm glad I I'm glad I grew up a jazz fan. I'm glad I was rooting for those guys. When I hear Michael Jordan give his Hall of Fame speech and hear hear John Stockton give it before then, I, I heard those and I thought I was rooting for the right guys. I really was. I loved that team. Total loyalty to that team. It doesn't matter to me that they lost. I just love the team. And uh, Jordan is the greatest player of all time, largely because he beat that team. Um, largely because he beat that team twice. The Jazz were the only team that that made the finals twice against the Bulls. Uh, the other four championships they had were all against uh, were against teams that they only played one time, but they played the Jazz twice. And the time that they had, I, I would argue, the best chance of losing was that last year. Um, and uh, you know, so when I see when I see Jordan versus the Jazz, uh, as I've met, as I've met, met uh, as I've said as uh, earlier in this podcast. Um, I, it, it definitely brings back some terrible memories, but it reminds me that you know the, the number 13 pick out of the 1985 draft and the number 16 or 17 pick in the 1984 draft, although they were not supposed to be great, ended up being two of the best players of all time. And uh, love that team, always love that team. Don't care that they lost. They're still like... There's a reason that they've got uh, statues in front of the the Jazz's arena now, and we still talk about them. We still love them, and you just can't. I mean, I think Pacers fans are similar to Jazz fans in this way. Like we love our our guys that have come through here. We are part of the team. There is such a crazy rabid fandom it still exists today, and it's just it's fun to remember. So, and those. Um... If, you, if anyone ever hears a card referred to as a shadow card, 
that's kind of what uh, he's talking about there. When you've got a player that you collect is in the background of the card, um, there are a lot of people that uh, pursue shadow cards. Even like, you know, right now I've seen people that look for cards that LeBron James is in. Maybe they can't afford a, a gold refractor of LeBron, so they find a shadow card where he's in one. So mm. it's just a different way to collect. Um, I actually laughed at someone that tried something like that not too long ago, and then they sold it for a lot of money. So uh, I went out and grabbed a, a similar one. So the uh, you know you learn more as you go. All right, so ja- um, Adam, we could sit here and talk about our favorite teams for a long time, but. Um, we've got lives to live. I got to let you go. People are, are listening and they're, well, they're already wherever they were commuting to. I'm sure they've had to split this up. Um, before <laughs> we go, though, I got to give you a chance to plug your show, your countdown, your social media, whatever you have going on that you want to plug. Uh, this time is yours. Well, you're kind, and I always appreciate when you give me a chance to come in and talk to you. It's always, I'm sure it's more fun for me than it is for you, and um, I've said it before, your show is so well organized and so interesting. I don't ever, uh, I, I mean this, I don't miss episodes. I listen to every episode, even when I am not really excited about your um about the topic of the day, I still listen to it. And I think that should give you an idea of how much I think of, of you and your show. Um, I do a show that's not nearly as good. Um, it's called the basketball card podcast. Uh, the reason that it's called the basketball card, basketball card podcast is because it was the first basketball card podcast. I started it hoping that someday we would have, um, you know, that we would have things to listen to about cards. I would go to work. I'd listen to four hours of podcasts and I'd be like, and it just hit me one day, like, why do we not have something that's related to basketball cards? We should do that. We should have it. So I'd never done anything like that, but I was like, let me see if I can create a show. I'm an accountant. I shouldn't know how to put together a show. I still probably don't know how to put together a show, but clearly I have some passion for it and I do care about it. So I started the show four years ago, five years ago. I stopped after 27 or 28 episodes and then um, came back four years ago, or came back, sorry, came back, uh, I don't know, maybe two, three months ago. And I just do a, do a recording each week of something that is meaningful and important to me. I'm not nearly as organized as Kyle, and it's, like I say, it's not as good. But um, but if you're ever interested in hearing you know me talk about cards for an hour um, and drone on and on about who knows what else, uh, I'm, I'm always happy to have you come listen. You can find it on iTunes. You can find it, find it on uh, SoundCloud. Um, and as Kyle mentioned earlier, my Instagram is uh, at the real 27 guy where over the next three months, I'll be counting down my top 100 cards. And this year, my top included in that will be my top 100 sets and top 100 partial sets. So it's just my top 100 sort of items in my basketball card collection and I'll talk about why they're important to me, why they're in my collection and why I think they're cool. All right. Um, so, and, uh, one thing I like about your show is, um, you, you come at things from a different perspective. You had one not too long ago where you talked about the different, um, consignment options and you gave your personal experiences with those. So, um, which I think you said was your most listened to one up to this point. So, Please check out that show. Check out his social media. I'll make sure to link that for him. Adam, once again, thanks for coming on, and I will be talking to you soon. Kyle, you are the man. Anytime, brother. All right, and there you have it. 
I want to extend a big thank you to Adam for coming on the show and talking late 90s hoops. When it comes to talking about the Jazz, uh, like I said earlier, he was my first and only choice. And I want to remind you again that he has a weekly podcast that talks about the hobby. Make sure you check that out. I'll make sure to tag his social media so you can check that out for yourself. While you're at it, don't forget to check out my Instagram, which is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter, which is at Wax Museum PC. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store, tag Taco Bell, and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. Podcast.